This far in our study of Matthew 8 and 9, we've seen Jesus heal a leper, a centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law, demonstrating his power over disease. We've seen him rebuke the wind and the waves, making them perfectly calm, showing his power over nature. We've watched as he commanded a legion of demons to come out of men living in the tombs outside of Gadara, seeing his power over evil. We saw him linked together. The healing of the paralytic with the forgiveness of sins, proving his power over sin. And we watched him take the hand of a dead 12-year-old girl and say, Little girl, arise. He even has power over death. All of this Jesus did in front of witnesses. Now, he wasn't grandstanding. In fact, he asked most of them not to tell what had happened because he didn't want the direction of his ministry dictated by the demands of the crowd. But he did these things publicly for all to see or to at least hear about so they would know who he was. And some did see while others chose not to see. And Matthew illustrates this beautifully in the next few verses of chapter 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And after he had come into the house, the blind men came up to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Be it done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here, let no one know about this. But they went out and spread the news about him in all the land. When Jesus left the house of Jairus after raising his daughter from the dead, a crowd followed. In the crowd were two blind men, blind men. Jesus, they began to cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, as far as we know, this is the first time anyone has called Jesus son of David. And to call him the son of David is to recognize him as the Messiah, the Christ, the one for whom the Jewish nation had been waiting These two blind men apparently saw Jesus as the Messiah. And they were convinced that as such, he could do something about their condition. After all, the prophet Isaiah had spoken of the Messianic age as a time when the eyes of the blind would be opened and the ears of the deaf would be unstopped. The lame would leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb would shout, For joy. They believed that day had come. 
and cried out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Following Jesus into the house, probably Peter's house where Jesus was staying, they repeated the request. And Jesus simply asked them, Do you believe I'm able to do this? In essence, I think he was asking, Do you really believe I am the Messiah? When they said, Yes, Lord, he touched their eyes and said, Be it done according to your faith. Their eyes were opened. The blind men could see. Jesus sternly warned them, and the the text emphasizes the sternly. He really didn't want them telling everyone what he had done or who they believed him to be, at, at least not yet. But they disobeyed him and spread the news throughout the land. The results of their witness and the events that followed did, however, enable even more to see. Let's read on. And as they were going out, behold, a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, Nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. Isaiah had said the dumb would shout for joy. And who would be more joyful than someone who had been made dumb by demons? Now, kids, when we say dumb, it's a phrase meaning you can't speak, okay? just want to clarify that for the kids this morning. I mean, you adults all knew that. Now, obviously, not all muteness is caused by demonic activity. And the biblical record is careful to distinguish between cases which are and those which are not. But in this case, a man's muteness, his inability to speak, was caused by demonic activity. Now, what other problems the demons caused in his life were not told, but they did have a hold of his tongue. When he's brought to Jesus... Jesus simply cast the demon out of his life, and when the demon was gone, the man could speak. The multitudes marveled, saying, nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. Now, what did they mean by that? You know, miracles did happen during the Old Testament period. In fact, numerous miracles were associated with the ministry of Moses. From his call at the burning bush, to the signs and plagues that broke the grip of Egypt, to the events at Sinai. Miracles weren't unknown. Elijah and Elijah even raised the dead. But the multitudes saw in Jesus Something that had never been seen before. They saw the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. They saw the eyes of the blind opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leaping like deer, and the dumb shouting for joy. They were seeing the Messiah. And many began recognizing him. As such. Others, however, refused to see. 
But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees couldn't see who Jesus was because they didn't want to see who Jesus was. They had too much at stake. The Messiah would change everything. Sure, he'd open eyes and unstop ears and loose tongues, but he would also usher in a new order that might drastically alter their standing in the religious community. They really didn't know what their place would be in the Messianic kingdom, but they knew where they currently were. They were at the top. They had respect. They had influence. They had power. If Jesus was the Messiah, they might lose their standing, so they didn't want him to be the Messiah. They were happy with the way things were. They didn't want anything to change. Still, he was doing things that made him look like the Messiah, Some were already calling him the son of David, and the multitudes would soon be joining that chorus. They couldn't deny what was going on. They couldn't deny what they were seeing. The only thing they could do was reinterpret it. They had to find an alternative explanation for the power he had. And they found it in the devil. He cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. They would say that more than once. When we get into the 12th chapter, we'll see it again, and we'll see Jesus' response. We'll learn of the danger of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of refusing to believe what God is doing, and of giving credit to Satan for what the Holy Spirit is doing. We'll deal with this at length when we get to it. For now, Jesus simply ignores their charge. But we can't. We need to be reminded how blind we can become to something because we don't want To see it. And we do this more than you might think. We declare our clothes are shrinking because we don't want to believe we're gaining weight. We swear they're using smaller print because we don't want to admit our eyes are getting bad. We might even go to the doctor, avoid going to the doctor because we don't want him to tell us that we really do have a problem. It's not unusual for us to choose not to see something we don't want to see. Most of the time doing so is relatively harmless, but it can be fatal. And even worse, when it comes to spiritual truth, it can have eternal consequences. And let's not kid ourselves. God is not to blame for our spiritual blindness. He hasn't left us groping in the dark for spiritual truth. He has, in fact, revealed himself to us in many ways. 
In times past, he actually assumed visible form and appeared to selected individuals. He spoke to the prophets through dreams and visions. For over 30 years, he took on flesh, revealing himself through his son. And he inspired the biblical writers to document his will and his ways for us to read. He even planted a sense of his presence within the heart of every man and made it possible for all to know at least something about him through the physical witness of his creation. Yes, even the natural world reveals much about a supernatural God and spiritual reality. For as Paul declared in Romans 1, 18 through 22, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became Those who live in spiritual darkness have only themselves to blame. They don't want to see God. And those who don't want to see God, a God to whom they are accountable, have always searched for alternative explanations for the things that point to a creator God. They refuse to see the hand of God in the miracles that surround us. The miracle of birth, of the human body, of life itself. The interplaying intricacies of nature and the finely tuned universe in which we live are explained by theories that are much harder to believe than that which we read in God's Word. At least they are, as long as we let the Bible speak for itself and not interpret it in ways that create unnecessary conflicts between the Bible and science. And admittedly, unnecessary conflicts are created not only by scientists who are committed to a materialistic worldview, but preachers who are locked into a narrowly defined literal reading of the text. What John Clayton prints on the back of every issue of his bi-monthly publication, Does God Exist?, is indeed 
true. It's scientists versus preachers, not science versus the Bible. And regretfully, I was one of those preachers. Twenty-some years ago, however, I was challenged to re-examine what I had been taught about the need to believe in a young earth and the need to accept a literal six-day creation in order to remain true to the text. Books by Hugh Ross and the writings of those who see evidence of intelligent design in nature convinced me that such an interpretation was not only unnecessary grammatically, but it created unnecessary stumbling blocks for those who want to accept. God's word as true. Gerald Schroeder, a Jewish physicist and theologian, confirms this in the introduction to his book, Genesis and the Big Bang. He writes, Two very different types of researchers toil at understanding our cosmic history. One delves into the secrets of the universe through physics and cosmology. The other relies on interpretations of the Bible. In spite of their common goal, they use such different sources of information that they often appear to be mutually antagonistic. I strongly believe that the antagonism experienced by these two groups is unnecessary. Rather, it is the result of a sort of professional provincialism, a myopic view of knowledge an understanding of both physics and biblical tradition shows that the opening chapters of the book of Genesis and the findings of modern cosmology corroborate rather than dispute each other. You know, if scientists and preachers alike will give up their pet theories and interpretations and simply examine the evidence found in nature and the facts revealed in God's Word, they can find themselves standing together in awe of their Creator. The introduction to Antony Flew's book, There is a God, How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind makes it clear that even an open-minded atheist can have his eyes opened. A wave of modern atheists, now this was written just about seven years ago. A wave of modern atheists have taken center stage and brought the long-standing debate about the existence of God back into the headlines. Spearheaded by Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens, this new atheism has found a powerful place in today's culture wars. Although this movement has been billed as new, the foundation of its argument is indeed indebted to philosopher Antony Flew and his groundbreaking paper, Theology and Falsification, the most widely reprinted philosophical publication of the last half century. Flew built his highly acclaimed academic career 
publicly debunking the existence of God. But now, the renowned philosopher has arrived at the opposite conclusion and officially joined the other side. In There is a God, Flew discloses his newfound belief in a God who created the universe. Flew earned his fame by arguing that one should presuppose atheism until evidence of a God surfaces. He now believes that such evidence exists. There is a God reveals for the first time the scientific discoveries and philosophical arguments that turned him from a staunch atheist into a believer. With refreshing openness to argument and an absence of anger and hostility that have been hallmarks of the new atheism, Flew shows how his commitment to following the argument wherever it leads resulted to his own astonishment to his conversion to belief in a creator God. I've got two copies of the book on my desk if you want to read one. Anyone, anyone with eyes not blinded by a limited worldview or personal rebellion against their Creator should be able to see the miracles that surround them. If you can't see the hand of God at work in the world and in your own life, let your prayer be, Open my eyes that I may see. Let's pray it together.